Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Just really quickly, I want to remind you about our project graduation event for the Rungi Senior Class that will take place on June 1st from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. We're still seeking sponsors and chaperones, and we ask that you consider praying about how you can help. Today, we're going to continue in our study on the book of John by talking about one of his greatest miracles. So today, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, because this message is entitled, Here Lies Death. If you had the power to heal people, would you heal everyone? You know, most human beings feel a certain responsibility to end suffering when we see it. Um, you wouldn't walk past a car with a baby alone in the back seat of a turned-off vehicle in, in, in the heat with the windows up, would you? I mean, if the baby was dying, you would break the window or get some help, right? The reason why is because we feel responsible to end suffering when we're able to especially when we're confronted with it. Yet, even though Jesus had this power in Scripture, he didn't. Now, my question for you is, why? Why not? Why didn't Jesus heal everyone? And before we jump to the conclusion that Jesus only healed people who had faith, look at the man whom Jesus healed at the Pool of Siloam. This man didn't even know Jesus' name, much less that Jesus is God. And if you look closely, you can see that this man never made a confession of faith. Sure, he went to the temple, but you never see him say the words, you are the Christ. And whether he ever did is debatable. Another example would be that Jesus healed the temple guard whose ear was cut off by Simon Peter. This man was there to arrest him, not surrender to him, yet Jesus reached down, picked up his ear, put it back on his head, and healed him. Jesus did plenty of miracles for people, from feeding 5,000 to turning water into wine to healing sickness and disease. And many refused, even afterwards, to believe that he was the Messiah. And if you still find yourself unable to surrender to this fact, consider this. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. Has the Father always healed you? God, God might heal me, but he hasn't yet. Can he see my suffering? And if so, why doesn't he end it? Is, is, is my failure of, of, of being healed a, a failure of faith, or is it something else going on? Jesus didn't heal everyone, even though he had the power to. So think about that for just a second. Because what I want to do today is I want to talk about why that might have been. What I'd like to do is for, I'd like for us to, to open our hearts and our minds to God and ask that, that he'd answer why he doesn't heal everyone, even though he has the power to. I believe today's passage is going to speak to that. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. We're going to start with verses 1 through 16. This is what it says. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and uh, her sister Martha. Uh, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, him who you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after, he, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. 
The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you might believe, let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we might die with him. So um, I want to make several points in here. The first one is that Jesus isn't ignorant of our suffering. In this passage, we see a certain man, Lazarus, uh, named Lazarus, was sick. Now, Scripture gives us a little insight on who this man was in his relationship with Jesus. His sisters were Mary and Martha. Jesus had a close relationship with his family, and the first time we see mention of them is when the woman came with expensive perfume and poured it on his feet and cleaned his feet with her tears, wiping them clean with her own hair. Now, we have reason to believe that this family even helped to financially support Jesus' ministry. So, here's a better question. If you had the power to heal people, wouldn't you at the very least help out your friends? Wouldn't you heal your friends? Well, word was sent to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, and Jesus waited two days before doing anything about it. So, Jesus wasn't ignorant of Lazarus' condition. He knew, and he intentionally waited. And early on in this passage, we see the answer to our question. Why did Jesus wait? Why didn't Jesus end his suffering? He says in verse 4, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Now, we've talked about this before. All things exist to bring glory to God. What is the primary reason Jesus came into the world? Now, if we say so that people might be taken to heaven, we're wrong. The primary reason Jesus did anything was to bring glory to the Father. And here he says, so the Son of God might also be glorified. God is all about bringing glory to himself, and saving people is a part of that agenda, but it's not the primary reason. We are created for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed even when I have made. Now, I want you to be thinking on this point as we continue through this passage of Scripture because when we read the Bible through this lens that everything is for God's glory, everything else falls into place. In verses 5 and 6, it says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and because he loved them, he chose to stay two extra days. Now, if you look in verse 18, it points out that Bethany was about two miles off from Jerusalem. Now, I used to believe that Jesus was in Jerusalem, but we've read here that Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem. Scripture doesn't tell us where he was, so it's very likely that Lazarus was almost dead when they sent word for Jesus, and it likely took a day to reach Jesus, um, and that he waited two more days, and then when he started to go back, that it took another day to get there, which lines up with the fact that Jesus was dead, uh, excuse me, Lazarus was dead for four days, we see in verse 39. Notice, though, in verse 7, that when Jesus said, okay, it's time to go get Lazarus, in verse 8, the disciples were concerned about losing their own lives. They were concerned for him. You know, the Jews were trying to kill him. You want to go back? Now, several times in the book of John so far, we've seen that Jesus' life was constantly in danger because the religious leaders were looking to kill him. So when Jesus didn't go immediately, that made perfect sense to the disciples why he wouldn't go. People were trying to kill him. Why would he want to go? Yet here Jesus says, well, it's time to go. And they protested. Now notice the cryptic response of Jesus in verse 9. He says that while it's day, it's time to work. And then he uses the same principle and mentions that, that at night when you can't see, you trip and you stumble over things. Well, that makes sense. It's dark. Why does he say this? 
Well, first answer, who is he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. Now, I believe Jesus said this to his disciples because they were looking at their lives in a worldly way. They weren't looking at the things of God. Now, Jesus had already said that he's the light of the world. And what he's telling his disciples here is much like the same thing he tells Simon Peter later, later on. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. In other words, you're focusing on the temporary. Lift your eyes, guys. Focus on the eternal. Stop living day to day and think about the future with God. Now, this happens to the best of us. We begin to worry about temporary things instead of focusing on God, instead of focusing on His plan, instead of focusing on His purpose for us, that we are called to bring Him glory. And I read a quote the other day by Sarah Young in the book Jesus Calling. She said, Anxiety is the result of considering your future without God in it. You see, we feel anxiety and worry when we forget about how big God is. Jesus says to his disciples this way in Matthew chapter 10, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he goes on to say, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings to witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. And at that time, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. So all you have to do is lift your eyes off of the temporary and lift it to God because he's going to give you the words to say. Well, in today's passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples that he's not been focused on the day-to-day life. He's not focused on the temporary, but on the eternal work of God. And sometimes the eternal work of God can be confused as the temporary, but it wasn't. And he says that work included Lazarus. And guess what? That eternal work of God, it includes us too. He says in verse 11 that Lazarus is asleep. And in verse 12, the disciples say, well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Don't worry about it. They're still questioning Jesus because they don't have their focus in the right place. And in verse 14, Jesus flat out tells them, guys, Lazarus is dead, okay? He's dead. Now look what he says after that in verse 15. He says, and I am glad. What? Lazarus is dead and you're glad? Not the typical response human beings have when they think about funerals, especially not in response to when we lose dear friends. Maybe evil stepmothers, but not friends, right? Why is he glad? Well, keep reading. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. In other words, this is a teaching moment for you guys. You've seen me save people from death by healing their sickness. This time you're going to see something a whole lot bigger than that. Now, typically, we refer to the disciple Thomas with a certain nickname. We call him Doubting Thomas because he doubted that Jesus was alive and he wouldn't believe that he had resurrected. He was resurrected until he saw with his own eyes and touched him with his own hands. And initially, when I read this passage, I thought, look at that. Thomas is ready to give up his life for Jesus. He gets a bad rap. But in truth, you know, as I, as I studied this and prayed about it, I see the truth. He, he's doubting here, too. So when he says, let us go also that we might die with him. Let me translate that for you in the common vernacular. He's basically saying, well, this is a stupid idea, but I guess I'm in. Let's all go. We're going to die. Jesus, I tried to tell you this is dumb. So doubting Thomas is exactly right. That's what he's doing. Let's continue on. Verse 17 through 37. He says, so when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she said this, she went away and, he, and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, uh, the teacher is here and he's calling you. And when he heard, when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary, Martha met him. Excuse me. Then the Jews who were there with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary get up quickly and went out, go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man also from dying? Now, again, I want to make another point. Jesus' real enemy is death. And I want to show you that in Scripture. Jesus goes to Bethany as he's confronted with Martha. And before we go into that discussion, consider that when we previously saw Martha in Scripture, Mary was the one at the feet of Jesus, and Martha was the one who worried about washing dishes and preparing food and working in the kitchen. Now, I think if we look closely, though, we will see a little bit of role reversal here. Notice Martha's statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, now if, you, if you caught that, Mary said the same thing. But this is one of those times in Scripture I really wish we could hear the tone of voice instead of just reading the black and white text. Because that statement sounds like an accusi- accusation. But if we continue reading, I think we will see that it's not an accusation. It's a confession of faith. It's an admission. She says, even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. You see, she's hurting and she's suffering, but she still holds on to hope. And Jesus said to her, your brother will live again. Now, when I say that she's holding on to hope, notice what she says here. Her her response, you have to take it with a little bit of humility. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So there was a sharp debate in Jesus' day between the Pharisees and Sadducees regarding whether the afterlife was possible. We see Jesus run into it with the the Sadducees before. The scripture says they didn't believe. And here we see that Martha sided with the Pharisees because she says, I believe he will live again at the resurrection. And Jesus, just like the Father is patient with her ignorance, uh, uh, just like he is with us, he's he's patient with her about about her ignorance. See, she didn't have any clue what God was going to do here. And she had hope, but she could not allow herself to hope that Jesus meant what she truly longed for. She was ignorant, as we all are, about the life and death and and, and the afterlife. And she resigned to a safe, solid gamble by saying, well, I believe he will rise in the resurrection. She didn't dare hope that he would be raised from the dead. Now picture the passion coming out of Jesus' words here in response. Jesus said to her, 
You've heard of the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. You guys don't have to wait around and debate with the Sadducees and resign to, to, to the statement, well, I guess we'll find out. The resurrection is here. The resurrection is staring you in the face. Those who believe in me will live even if they die. He then takes the conversation out of the temporary and looks at the eternal. Everyone who believes in me will never die. Now, I want to spend some more time talking about the power in this statement, but for the sake of my point, we'll come back to it in just a second. Look at Martha. She goes. After this, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. And so she goes and gets Mary secretly and tells her the teacher, not Jesus, hey, the teacher's here. The teacher's here. Why in secret? Well, I think it's because she doesn't want to put him in danger. Now, you see some contrast here between Martha and Mary, and it's interesting because you saw contrast the other way earlier in Scripture. Here, you see Martha going in secret. Mary jumps up quickly and brings a crowd with her because she, I believe, is going to confront Jesus and even accuse him. Now, I know that's a Wallerism, but just look at the passage. She comes with a crowd following her instead of secretly slipping out. She's not thinking. She's just in pain and is very likely angry with Jesus. There's no confession of faith from Mary here. She's already done that. She's already cried on his feet and wiped, her, wiped his feet with her hair. You just see troubled words at the feet of Jesus. She says in verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I realize I'm taking some religious liberties here, but I believe it's within reason. She had a good question on her heart. The very same question we ask today. If you can heal people, why didn't you come? It's a feeling of, of hurt, man, and bitter betrayal. And sometimes that feeling comes in our relationship with God. I'm not saying it's right. All I'm saying is that sometimes God doesn't do what we want him to. And even though we know he's good, sometimes it just doesn't feel like it. And I think that's what she's experiencing here. I, I know that you're good. I know that you can heal. But why didn't you? I don't understand. I'm bitter. I'm angry at you, God. And in verse 33, we see the true heart of Christ. And this gives us some insight on the nature and the character of God. It says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, I'm studying a commentary by, uh, on John by R.C. Sproul, and one of the things he says in the word, uh, about the word troubled, he says, is that there's a miscalculation from the Greek. A more accurate translation would be that Jesus was irate. Now, he's, he says he wonders if the original translator felt uncomfortable about wording, writing the word irate because of the connotation that it carries about Jesus, but it makes so much more sense. Jesus wasn't just troubled. Jesus was angry. Not because he had just been accused by a hurting woman. Jesus was angry because of what the world had done to his sheep. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve tasted the forbidden fruit, Jesus' enemy was death, was sin and death. And this is the very same context of saying that when Jesus looked at the people and had compassion on him they were because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus had 
compassion in his response. Extreme hurt for his sheep. And extreme anger towards the real enemy. And so in verse 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, uh, by the way, I don't know if you know that, it says, Jesus wept. Now picture the emotion and the passion of Jesus Christ. Jesus hated death. As much as I can say, I hate drugs. You know, sometimes I look at this town and I consider how different things would be if drugs had never been discovered. Our town is plagued by drug addictions and abuse. Drugs are my enemy. Not just because I was once on it, but because I see what it had done to my life and I see what it's doing to those who are consumed by it. And I look at these kids in this town who have no choice in the matter because their parents' lives are dominated by drug addictions. I hate drugs. I hate them. And Jesus, he weeps here, much like I just want to weep over these children because he looked at what sin and death had done. And the people were again divided in their ignorance because he wept. Some said, look how he loved them. And others said, couldn't he have healed this man and saved him from death? Now, does it make any sense, though, that Jesus would mourn over Lazarus when he knew what he was about to do? No. Jesus wept because he hurts that his sheep were helpless and harassed. Jesus wept because all of our problems are brought on by sin. And when we mourn, he mourns. When we are sinned against, he gets angry. Jesus' enemy is sin and death. I want to hurry and try to finish up here because there's so much more to cover. He says in verse 38, So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was the cave and the stone was lying against us. And so Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, I did, not, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank, that you, thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around it, I said it so that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said these words, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, said to them, unbind him and let him go. And my final point I want to make here is that Jesus destroys death. Death is his enemy. Jesus destroys death. John again makes mention that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now why didn't Jesus... Uh, come immediately. Why did he intentionally wait instead of coming right away? If he is God and he knows what's going to happen, why wasn't he standing by like waiting to heal Lazarus as soon as he got sick? That was his friend, right? That's a good question. And the rabbinic teachings of Jesus' day, the common belief that was when a person died, a person's spirit hovered over the body for three days. And if somehow that person came back to life, it was simply because the Spirit came back on its own. You see, Jesus waited four days because he wanted to raise Lazarus without there being any question of doing this miracle and revealing that he was God's Son. 
Jesus prays a corporate prayer here. In other words, he prays so that other can, others can hear. He essentially says, you know, Father, we've already had this discussion, and I know what I'm supposed to do. You've already given me the authority to do what needs to be done. I'm simply praying so that people will know that I am your son and so that, that glory might be brought to you. And Jesus commands they remove the stone, and he calls out Lazarus by name. Now, a real quick Wallerism here is something I like to think about. My dad once preached. He, he, he taught that Jesus called Lazarus by name because if he had simply said, Come back to life, come forth, that every dead man on earth would have risen from the grave. Again, that's a Wallerism, not necessarily gospel truth, but it's pretty cool to think about. Scripture says that Jesus called him by name and Lazarus came out of the grave. Now, Jesus did what no one else could. He raised the dead to life. Now, just really quickly, I want to go back to the discussion we were having about how Jesus says, He who believes in me will never die. Last week in our marriage and parenting class, we talked about how every child needs to grow up with three significant feelings. They need to feel loved or they need to feel secure. They need to feel an extreme sense of purpose. And they need to feel hope. And when they have these three things, God is able to work in them. He works through them. Now, this passage speaks to all three of those things, love, purpose, and hope. But for the sake of time, I just want to focus on the last one, hope. Many of today's problems are prevalent because people lose hope. When things seem hopeless, we just give in and we give up. This passage is so important in the life of believers everywhere because we have access to eternal hope. Now, understand that when I say this, I don't mean that we should name our miracle and claim it. For example, I have a rare disease called, called achalasia where the muscle, muscles of my esophagus, they don't function properly. I'm not going to claim that I'm going to be healed and pray for it. I've done my praying about it. Now, if you want to pray for that, that's awesome. I appreciate it. But my point is that I haven't lost hope that God would heal me. My point is that my physical healing isn't my primary focus. For years, I have questioned why God allowed me to develop this disease. And after years of praying, I believe I have an answer. I'm not called to focus on the temporary. I'm called as a child of God to focus on my future with God. I have hope even if he doesn't heal me miraculously physically. Because Jesus raised the dead man to life. If Jesus can do that, he can do anything. That's where hope lives. This is where hope is reborn. He raised a dead man to life. Rabbi Zacharias once aptly said, he said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Jesus said, when we believe in him, we will never die. We are given eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I want to I just really quickly read a passage of scripture for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the purpose of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Uh, disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and, and were dominated. We were dominated by sin, by nature of children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have 
been saved. What this passage speaks to is that we were once rich in sin and in death, but God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ because death is his enemy. Listen, we don't fear death because because we believe in, in the afterlife. We don't fear death because those who are in Christ were once dead and are now made alive. We don't have to wait for the resurrection. The resurrection has come. Eternal life for the children of God has already begun. Now, if you're a child of God, let me hear an amen. Those who are in Christ will never die. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Eternal life isn't coming. Eternal life is here. And if you've trusted your life in the hands in his hands, consider this. Just consider it. We were once rich in sin and death. And just like you don't see a hearse followed by a U-Haul trailer because you can't take it with you, once you were dead, you have now been raised to life. You are a new creation. The things of this world are gone. You cannot take it with you into eternal life. So lay down your worries. Lay down your doubt. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your shame. Jesus has come into this world. The resurrection has come. Stop looking at the temporary. Lift your eyes and look to the eternal. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, hear these words. You are dead. And if you will listen, you will hear God calling your name. He's calling your name right now, saying, Come out of your tomb. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.